Welcome back to our study of Mark's Gospel. In this video, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 10. And in this chapter, of course, we're making our way quite uh, quickly through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And as we get to here, we're, we're going to see a lot of things that, that we need to take in that are really, I believe, at the heart of what Jesus uh, was teaching his disciples and what Jesus wants us, uh, the type of life that he wants us to live. So let's look at this chapter and let's learn from Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. Let's pause right here. Now, this is the same type of question that people might even ask today, those who are trying to test someone, trying to even perhaps trap somebody else in the way that they answer that question. Because there's different ideas as to, to what this means, but what Jesus is, is doing is, He's, he's not going down into these typical roads that they might want him to. Because, you know, the Pharisees, they might have had their own idea of, of okay, well, well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you know what? Uh, they might have had their own ideas about what that uh, meant. But Jesus' response takes them back to the Bible, which I think is so important for us to do that as well. And in verse 3, we see simply what Jesus says is, what did Moses command you? You know, they're looking to Jesus to ask him these questions, but he's just saying, look, what did Moses command you? And we also, uh, I guess one thing that I overlooked here that's found in verse one, we find out something else that was part of what Jesus did. Now, I mean, we've recognized this already. We've seen that as he goes throughout places, what he does is he heals people and he teaches them. Well, right here we find out that it, it's even stated that these crowds, they came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. See, it was just natural for him to teach these crowds, and that's what Jesus did. So what's he doing right here? He's taking them back to God's word and asking the question, what did Moses command? But there's still more. Verses 4 through 12. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Okay, so let's look at these verses and let's see how Jesus answers this question. His question, going back to verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they respond. They know the law. They know what Moses had commanded them. And uh, by the way, I believe that the passage, at least the, the largest passage uh, that they would be uh, referring to right here, uh, would be back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, if you want to kind of uh, look at what the law uh, says about that. Um, but yes, Moses did allow a certificate of divorce to be written in. That was part of the law of Moses. But then Jesus tells them even more about that law. And he says, there's a reason for that law. Uh, because it's not really supposed to be like that. Okay? And see, this is whenever we come into a, a, an interesting thing about uh, God, really. Because God has his way that he would like things to be. And let's face it, because God is good, 
He doesn't want any sin to be among us at all. I mean, not even the, the smallest sin, if there can even be such a thing. He doesn't even want that smallest sin to be found among us. But we are human. And we know that there, there is sin among us. You know, there, there has been sin among us. Uh, it's part of even our nature. But it's still not part of what God wants. God wants us to be pure. God wants us to be holy. And so part of that law is, as the way that Jesus described it in verse 5 is, he says, it's because your hearts were hard that that law was in there. But then he tries to get them to go back to something. And I, I think this is so important, too. And I, I really like doing this. I, I love one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. I mean, you know, those of you who've been coming to, to church here uh, for a while, uh, it doesn't take very long before that starts kind of coming up. And I start quoting and, and reading and stuff, different passages from Genesis. Because I really love it. And I think that Jesus, uh, going back to that, kind of gives us a reason uh, for why I love it so much. Is because there's so many first things that we find there. I mean, we find the beginning of everything. And he says in verse 6 that, you know, at the beginning, how did God set things up? God set things up in the garden by creating one man and one woman. And they were supposed to be united for life. That was God's intention. And you know what? We, we talk about it as being united for life. But I, I want to stretch it just a little bit farther than that. Because the way that I read Genesis, it seems that if they were to eat from the tree of life in the garden, just like God intended, okay? If they were supposed to, to do that, and if they did do that, then they would continue to live. So God's idea for marriage isn't just uh, one man and one woman uh, being united, becoming one for the, the rest of their lives. That's actually not really God's plan for marriage. Now, I might say that that's God's plan for marriage, and you know, you might say that too, and I think that we're accurately talking about it, but let's face it, when we go back to the beginning, it was Adam and Eve. They were to be united as one flesh, and they were to always be united as one flesh. I mean, if they ate from the tree of life, they would always live. The intention of God with marriage was for it to be something that, that lasted forever, that there wasn't any end. There wasn't supposed to be even the thought of an end of marriage in sight. That's what it means to go back to the beginning of creation. And I will tell you, yes, there, there are some difficult things about this. And, and one thing that we see, like in verse 9, it says, you know, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then in verses 10 uh, through 12, Jesus starts talking about how, you know, look, if you divorce and uh, you know, all of these things, you're committing adultery. Well, let me, let me remind you uh, about things. This is not the only passage that we have where Jesus talks about this, this case. Because sometimes whenever we read this, you know, we might read this passage and we might think, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, we are a Christian uh, who has maybe been married before and we find ourselves for one reason or another uh, divorced from our spouse, we might read this passage and think, well, there's no hope for me at all. But that's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is that there, there is still hope for us. And this passage, in this message of Jesus, what he is emphasizing is what marriage is all about. See, they start asking about divorce. But what I love about Jesus is he doesn't look so much about divorce. What he does is he takes this as an opportunity to teach about marriage. And that's what's so important. If you understand about marriage, and if you, uh, so to speak, if you do marriage the right way, if, if both spouses 
enter in marriage the correct way, then the rest of these things, uh, th there's going to be no need to talk about it. You don't need to talk about divorce because it, that's, that's, not even, that's not even on the table. It's not even something that comes up. And that's why Jesus, whenever he's talking about it right here, he's saying, look, you know, that there, there should just be nothing at all that, that, uh, that leads itself to, to separating these two that have become one flesh. That's the original intentions for marriage in God's sight. Now, of course, throughout times, there's been things that, that divorce, you know, people even in the church, they have been divorced. And what do they need to do in order to be right with God and to continue in that walk with God? Well, this passage doesn't shed light too much on that, but there are some other passages that do talk about that. And I'm not going to get into great detail about those things right now because we're really studying Mark's gospel. And what Mark does is he emphasizes marriage. And that's what I think that we need to do. But, you know, I mean, if you are somebody who are, are maybe struggling with that issue and, and want to know more about well, what does this mean about divorce and, and Christians and, and stuff, feel free to reach out to me. OK, I will uh, try to include a slide at the very end of this um, this video. Uh, different ways that you can reach out to me and uh, if you have a question about that uh, I would be happy to, to answer that you know this is one of the these issues uh, that is still uh, just as as important and one of these that is just you know at the forefront it's kind of like a hot topic among people uh, just like it was during Jesus day so I mean if you uh, genuinely need answers reach out to me and I'll uh, I'll help you out into some more things uh, going back to to mark though uh, th there's more that he teaches us about really being a disciple. So if we're a disciple of God, we're a disciple of Jesus, what we will do is we will look to God's word. We will learn from God's word. But there's still more about being a disciple. Verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now see, these few verses, to us, we look at this and, and we think, oh, you know, this is so sweet. This is so wonderful of what Jesus is doing. Let's for a moment, let's back up and let's put it in the context of what was actually happening. In their society... Uh, I, I'm not trying to, to say that this is, you know, uh, really the right way. I'm just saying this is just the way that it was, okay? Their society was uh, men were pretty much the, the most important people of your society. And technically, if we even want to get into this, it's only men from your own group. Like if you were a Jew, it was a Jewish man who was most important. You know, other men were, were not as important to you. Or if you were from some other nation, you know, that's kind of how they thought, too. Um, I guess in many ways, we kind of still oftentimes think like this as well. But men were kind of thought to be at the top. They were like the most important among people. And then below them, yeah, you would have women. And then below them, you would have children. Now, like I said, I'm not saying that this is the right way of doing things. In fact, I think that we see from what Jesus says that that isn't the right way of doing things. That's not how we should be thinking about it. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't think, oh, well, you know, men are more important than women and then women are more important than children. No. See, the, the way that our culture might might talk about that 
uh, would be even maybe a little bit different as, as to what, what we'd raise and who we think is the, the most important and all. But what did Jesus say? Whenever Jesus looked at this, he looked at the little child. So basically what he is doing is if you are in a culture, which Jesus was, you're in a culture that had men at the top and children at the bottom. And if you look at the children who are at the bottom of the importance, and if he said, look, you got to be like one of these children in order for you to enter into the kingdom, in order for you to be pleasing in God, be a part of what God is doing, you got to be like, like this person at the bottom, this child at the bottom. Now, you know, to us, we, we think about this maybe a little bit differently, but that's how they would have taken that. That was part of their culture. Jesus is kind of stressing this, that he's going to go into greater detail about how uh, we need to be willing to serve. You know, we don't need to think of ourselves as being at the top. We need to be humble people. We need to be humble followers of God. We need to be like little children. And then and only then can we enter into the kingdom. Well, entering into the kingdom of God, you might say that that's the same thing as being saved. You might say it's the same thing of eternal life. You might say it's just the same thing as just being on the same page as God. Well, however you kind of want to look at the kingdom, I think that it can really encompass all of those things. Next, we have this question from a rich man, which, by the way, I guess I didn't get much into this with the hierarchy. If you were a rich person, you were, of course, above a poor person. Okay, so now we have a rich person who's going to be asking this question. How does he become a part of what God is doing? And how does he become pleasing in God's sight? Verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This rich man, he had a question. It was a good question found in verse 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? People might ask that same question today. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he first addressed the fact that, that this rich man called him good teacher. And because of that, he says, why do you call me good? Only God's good. Jesus was not saying by this that, that he wasn't good. And maybe that's too many negatives. But what I'm saying is that, that Jesus wasn't saying that he was a bad person. What he was just saying is, look, this rich person comes to him and calls him good, calls Jesus good. And Jesus responds, only God is good. And really what he's hinting at is that this rich man just approached Jesus on the same terms of how we should be thinking about God. Now, I look at this, and of course, I think that that's a little bit of a nod to the fact that Jesus is God, that, that he was God in the flesh. So he said, why do you call me good? Then, in verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. So, I mean, apparently, Jesus knew, look, this guy, he knows what to do. He just needs to do it. See, knowing what to do, and actually doing what you need to do are two different things. Uh, the way that James puts it, now maybe I'm getting outside of Mark just a little bit, that you know we need to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We need to do something about it. 
And here that's what Jesus is telling you. It's kind of interesting when you start really examining these commandments that he looks at because, you know, Jesus conveniently leaves out the commandment about coveting and about, you know, that, that leads to greediness. Why is that? Well, it kind of seems like that was this rich man's problem. That's what he wasn't faithfully doing, that how he was not faithfully following God is he loved his great wealth and he let his wealth get in the way of him following Jesus, of him following God. That's why Jesus said, one thing you do lack. And he had to give up that wealth. He had to, to not place it on that high pedestal above God, but he needed to be willing to follow God. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. I'd like to think that that, that man eventually became a follower of Jesus, but really, we just don't know. And I think we see a lot of people just like this who they might have something that they place in front of God and they just, they need to re-examine their priorities. And they need to see, are they really putting God first in all that they do? Jesus teaches this wonderful thing about inheriting eternal life because he's not done talking. The, the, the rich man, he's already walked away, but the teaching is still going on. Verses 23 through 26. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Another great question. It looks like it would be impossible. You know, if the rich person who would be at the top of your society, yes, I said men were at the top, but let's face it, even rich men were, were above them. How hard it is for the rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. And then I don't think it's on accident that Jesus addresses his disciples as children. Okay, we just looked at this, remember? You've got to become like a child in order to enter into the kingdom. He looks at his disciples and he calls them children. And he says, this is what it's about. You have to be like a child in order to enter into the kingdom. You can't rely upon your wealth. It won't, it won't be able to save you. It might be able to get you a nice cozy life in this life. Then again, I don't know, it might not. But it most certainly won't help you in the life that is to come. He uses this example in verse 25 about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, you know, I, I want you to think about that. You know, think about the last time you've seen a needle and you look at that little little eye and it's it's hard enough to get that thread to go through it. Not that I have a whole lot of experience, you know, trust me. But, you know, I, I've tried that a, a couple of times. Uh, you know, I, I've tried to be able to put even just that thread through the needle. Many times you even have to, to lick the edge of the thread in order to get it to, to where it doesn't have any strands that are just going off in different directions so that it will go through the eye of a needle. There is no way that you can make a camel go through an eye of a needle. And you might say, well, you know, their needles were bigger. And yeah, okay, maybe their needles were bigger, but I don't care if you have a needle that the eye is this big, there's no way you're getting a camel through it. This was how Jesus taught. He was purposely using a silly illustration. Maybe one, maybe that was a phrase that, you know, might've even been kind of common or around them. Uh, whatever the case, it's common for us today to even talk about, you know, going through the eye of a needle or a camel through the eye of a needle or something like that. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And Jesus says, that's how it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's why the disciples say, 
Who then can be saved? Well, Jesus tells them who can be saved. Verses 27 through 31. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter uh, spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. He's still talking about how we need to become like little children. That's how we need to, to be uh, pleasing to God, is that we need to become the last. We need to become the least. We need to be willing to serve. Jesus is going to use that language a little bit later. I know maybe I've kind of uh, spoken of that a little bit too soon a couple of times. But here's the thing. The question is, who can be saved? Verse 27, nobody can. It's impossible for you on your own to be saved. But it's not impossible for God to save. He goes back and he says that our salvation is fully dependent upon God. Now, of course, okay, there are things that we have to do about that. I mean, Jesus constantly asks people to follow him. Okay, following him, it requires you to do something. But as far as being saved, that's something that God has done for us. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, that is how we can be saved. And we see this, this right here that, that Peter says, look, we've left everything to follow Jesus. And that's what we need. That's the type of followers we need to be. That we're willing to leave anything and everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, look, you're going to receive back even more in this present age. Because you're part of the family of God now. You're going to receive a lot of things in this life. This present age. But then he says, and in the age to come, verse 30, I love this, this phrase, and we, we hear about these different ages. So you have this age that we are living in right now, but then there's an age to come. The age to come will be one of eternal life for them, for us. If we simply follow God, it's possible for us to be saved. It's only possible because of what God has done and this plan that he has laid out for us. And not by accident that Jesus talks about that plan in the next few verses. Verses 32 through 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus tells them once again, this plan that God has. And they still don't see it whenever it actually happens. He is going to rise up from the dead. This is what's at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried in that tomb. But on that third day, he rose up, conquering death and promising to conquer our death as well. Giving us hope that our death will not be the, the final, uh, will not have the final word for us in our life. Verses 35 through 40 now. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup 
I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. The disciples don't quite understand how this kingdom is going to be. They're still thinking that Jesus being the king, he's going to sit on this physical throne and that there's going to be someone at his right and his left hand and that he's going to rule and reign on this earth. That's not how the kingdom of God works. This is how the kingdom of God works. Verses 41 through 45. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we see the same theme that's been repeated several times. If you want to be pleasing to God, you become like a, a little child. If you want to be pleasing to God, you've got to become the last. You've got to become a servant, is what's stated right here. That the great has to become a servant. And a wonderful verse, if you're looking for something to, to have like as a memory verse, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. And that is, that, that's probably the, the best verse from this chapter of, of Mark 10. And it is the Son of Man. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. He also came to give his life as his ransom for many. And Jesus did that every day of his life. And he also did that through his death. There's one final story in this chapter. And it's a wonderful miracle. Verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus, and his uh, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This blind man here, this blind Bartimaeus, as he is sometimes called, well, that's his name. Blind Bartimaeus, he spoke with such great faith. He said in verse 46, I'm sorry, he said in verse 47, and then also in verse 48, he addressed Jesus as the son of David, and he asked for him to have mercy on him. That phrase, son of David, it was a statement that meant he was recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, this, this king, was going to come from the line of David, be a son of David, and was going to be able to save them, save the nation, but, but even more than the nation. Jesus saved the entire world. This man has great faith in Jesus. Now, he can't see with his own eyes, 
but he's seeing with the eyes of faith. Because of that, Jesus calls him, he comes to Jesus, and he has the request. He wants to see, and Jesus heals him. And he tells him, your faith has healed you. And immediately, this blind Bartimaeus, he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. He was healed, but he also became a follower of Jesus. Now, him being healed, I mean, that was wonderful, okay? I, definitely. If I was blind, I would want to be able to see. That's something that I really uh, believe is very important to me, is my eyesight. But, you know, eventually, his eyesight probably kind of, you know, failed him as he got older and, and got to where, you know, it wasn't as good. Or, you know, his eyesight, eventually, whenever our eyes are closed for that last time, you know, that that's whenever that miracle you know, kind of ceases to be beneficial for that man. But he followed Jesus. That That is even more important than that his eyesight was restored. Because his eyesight being restored, yeah, it helped him in this life. But in the life that is to come, him being a follower of Jesus, that means so much more. In the words of Jesus, in the age to come, eternal life. That's what Jesus said back in verse 30. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I hope that you've experienced this wonderful life that Jesus can extend to each and every one of us. Jesus offers us to follow him, to be faithful, and that we will receive so many great and wonderful things, both in this life and in the life that is to come.